The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Ooh, shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter cyberneticists. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Hello. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 33, Hey Robots! And we'll be talking about the films Westworld, iRobot, and AI, as well as the TV shows Humans and Almost Human, with some next-generation data comments thrown in, too, because data rules. But first, let us know what your favorite robot is by posting on our Facebook page or emailing us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com. And remember, you can find handy links to all our episodes at generationsgeek.com. Now, on with the show. All right, 1973's Westworld, written and directed by Michael... Jurassic Park, Crichton. It's been decades since I've seen the show. This was your first time. I would like to say that I thought it held up pretty well for a film that's that many decades old. What what was your first impression? I really liked it, actually. Yeah. I did, yeah. It's a rather slow burn by today's standards. You know, it develops very slowly. They set up the situation... Things very slowly start to go wrong. I mentioned to you before we watched it that it's kind of like Jurassic Park, but with robots. Yeah, I really like that was part that I really liked when I was watching it. Like I could you can tell that he already has this thing in his head of the amusement park gone wrong. And it's so interesting. Did you notice that as you're hearing the ads? For the uh, the uh, for Westworld for Delos, that <laughs> they say no expense has been spared. I didn't hear that. <laughs> oh my god! It's that had to be a purposeful in joke on Michael Crichton's part. That then when Jurassic World came around, that spare Hammond no was spare no expense. Spare no expense. So Westworld, I like to also call it the first holodeck episode. <laughs> <laughs> for real. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for real, though. <laughs> yeah, it seems like this had to be an inspiration behind the holodeck, you know, the holodeck goes awry kind of thing, because it's so much the same thing. They're using this as a fantasy to get away from their normal life and do whatever they want, and the robots fulfill the uh, other roles, exactly the setup for the holodeck. I talk about world building a mm-hmm. lot on the podcast. It's been like a recurring thing with me mm-hmm. where it's like um, I prefer movies that have that. And I feel like this had enough because you get those scenes, first of all, showing you what it's about and you watch like the intro video. And then um, you see uh, the employees in like the laboratory, like, mm-hmm. okay, like ready. And then you get these shots of like the still life before the park wakes yeah. up. And then they're like, go. And then it's like simultaneously all of the parks like are up and active. And it's just like so cool. I really like it when movies can give you like that feeling of like something is big. Yeah. Well, and I think it was also something that was perhaps more necessary in 1973. Uh, a lot of this stuff uh, nowadays, people would be much more 
the average person would be much open, more open to some of these concepts and understand immediately what they're getting at. Um, whereas in 1973, you maybe needed a little bit more buildup. One thing that amused me along those lines is when things started going wrong, one of the scientists says that it's almost like a disease, except amongst the robots. And all the scientists are like, what? A disease amongst robots? Well, <laughs> that's just crazy talk. But, you know, nowadays you would just say computer virus. <laughs> and everyone would get it. There wouldn't be any, you know, it's like in 1973, there wasn't a concept of the computer virus. And I also liked how, like, um, the robots kind of going awry started with the smaller ones. Like the snake biting. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the main characters is like the first time that something actually goes wrong. Where you really know that something's going wrong. Yeah. Richard Benjamin is the character that first kills the gunslinger played by the uh, fabulous Yul Brenner. And when the gunslinger comes back and confronts his friend in the, in the hotel room, his friend played by James Brolin... I always had the sense that that was already like a signal that something was going wrong, that this robot seemed to be pursuing a grudge. Yeah, yeah, he shows up again, yeah. And and goes after them, where you would think, you know, after they've been, you know, repaired, that it's a clean slate. But it's not really stated outright, and maybe that's just something I was reading into it, but um, it seems like something's a little off there. One thing I want to mention, just because it was kind of fun, is that uh, Major Barrett, Star Trek's Nurse Chapel, showed up in the movie in a small role, Mm -hmm. and that was fun. Towards the end, though, there is kind of a lot of, like, just, you know that the gunslinger is after him, but nothing's really happening. Like, he's just running. And you get sort of these, these shots that are making it obvious that the entire park is down. Um, but it's like, as he's running, he only runs into, like, the one guy. Like, there's one employee that's like, well, you're basically dead, so, um, <laughs> whatever. But, like, I would think there'd be, like, other robots, like, that he would run into, or, like, other guests, and it's just, like, it just seems empty. Yeah, the... And the robots, the robots in, um, Medieval World, for some reason, are, like, shut down. It's like, they're not moving, but... Then Gunslinger's chasing him, and then he finds the robot in the basement, so I... Yeah, it's, um... It does get a little thinly plotted there. Like, after things start going awry, there's not a whole lot that goes on. I still find it an engaging movie to watch, but you can see there when there's talks of remakes and stuff, there'd be room to really flesh it out. Um, and he doesn't really have a reaction, like, his his buddy dies. And he doesn't really, except for, like, the initial, like, confusion, and then, like, oh, I have to run, he doesn't really yeah. react. And it's like, I'm pretty sure you should be, like, crying while you're on your horse. Like, instead he's just like, I can make it. And it's like, but also, like, your friend didn't, so... Yeah, th- that was underplayed definitely that that kind of got left out uh when when the, when things are finally over and he's just like collapses on his, the stairs i think you can see on his face what he's gone through but 
it's still something that they could have lingered on a little bit more. That could have, they, I, I think Crichton could have milked that a little for some more drama. It was an enjoyable movie, but there's not really an end. Like, it ends when Gunslinger dies. So there's, mm-hmm. like, kind of at the beginning, there's the initial confrontation. So it has the, you know, beginning, middle, end that a movie should have. But it's not as satisfying. Like, I was thinking about Jurassic Park, where Alan's with the kids the whole time. And then when they finally get to the end, they're, like, out and, like, yeah. they're getting helicoptered off the island. And uh, there's a lot more, like satisfaction mm-hmm. to the end of the movie and a lot of it is because of his character development with the kids and a lot of it is because they're all getting off of the island yeah when I was tapping little notes on my uh, iPad while watching it as the credits started to roll I just typed ending question mark question mark question mark yeah <laughs> so like it's over but like it's are over. The, were the people in the control room dead because they were like oh we have to open that door so that we don't suffocate yeah. and I was like there's like there's no air circulation at all yeah that that was a forced bit of drama that i I didn't think worked because it's not believable that the room would be airtight, and it's just bizarre that he looks in on this room full of dead people, and again, there's very little reaction and 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 so yeah, I think it kind of fizzles out at the end yeah. and the lead character is still, you know, he, he victorious in a way. He survives, but he's lost his best friend, and he's just sitting there in this place where, for all we know, the majority of other people are dead. Well, yeah, and it's like if if everything's shut down, like the doors aren't working, so can he get out? Does he like yeah. die there? It's, what is uh, the? Does he like find other guests and they're living for a while before they get rescued? Like, who knows? We don't. <laughs> I want to reboot. There's talk of a TV series. That doesn't seem like something that really has an ongoing... Yeah, I'm not sure how they're going to approach it as a continuing series. They must be doing some sort of radical re-envisioning of it to make it work. The plot could be a lot more gripping. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be, I don't know, it seems like there's there's lots of room in there for drama and comedy yeah. and all this stuff. So I think it has like a lot of potential that maybe wasn't completely used. Yeah. And we didn't Because the uh, beginning at the beginning of it I was like, Oh my god, I have to buy this on D V D and I'm gonna be watching this every <laughs> week for the rest of my life, just like hot fuzz. And then I was like, Never mind. It's a it's a it's a classic film of the genre. I really enjoyed watching it again after all these years, but it is thinly plotted in a way that that diminishes its rewatch value. We'll point out that it has been mined for sequels before, that there was Future World, which was not as uh, well-reviewed, and then I'd completely forgotten that they had attempted to make a TV series before called Beyond Westworld that lasted three episodes... <laughs> and it'll be very interesting to see what they do with this new one, although it's HBO, so we won't be seeing it right away since we don't have the HBO. But, I mean, we can we can trust HBO, right, to make something really good, so... They won't. They're going to have a budget. They're going to have a good cast. They're going to, you know, so they could really come up with something. And I guess if you made... If you stuck with the original concept of something going wrong, 
you could have it go much more slowly wrong and and really draw it out in a way that yeah, would be make kind it of a little bit yeah more creepy, creepy and unsettling than anything else because this one turns into a, an action movie that is a very, a very small scale action movie yeah cuz it's like it's like gunslinger versus Magnum P.I. <laughs> well, mustache Rick, man. He did have the mustache. Richard Benjamin did have a good mustache <laughs> there. Um, <laughs> one thing that I enjoyed about it in the casting is that the, the casting was perfect because James Brolin is a very believable tough guy. He's kind of a big guy, and, and, and his whole attitude, he's been there before, he, he seems very much like the guy that could get things done, whereas mm-hmm. Richard Benjamin is kind of a goofball, and mm-hmm. so it's perfect to see him being so worried about things and then actually uh, having some success early on. But, of course, his success is coming when things are going the way they're supposed to and the robots are made so they you know you can shoot them pretty easily. And then to see the challenges that he faces when things start going wrong... You know that that's uh, that was you know a little bit of that character arc that something like this needs, but it didn't really pay off in the long. I run. like that every time there's a fight, you can see Brolin in the background just diving over the bar. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every time there's just like a like a streak of green, and he's just like <laughs> like whiskey. It had some fun with the the, the classic motifs of the western. Yeah. They could have done more with that. Well, and just the casting of Yul Brenner as the uh as the gunslinger character is perfect. You know, he was in the classic film The Magnificent 7, you know, so he's been in westerns before and he's got a great presence he, and that he does. voice. Yeah. Yeah. is so menacing. I but I do think I would have liked it more if it had been like we were talking about before a little bit more creepy and unsettling mm-hmm. than Anything else like um, uh, Ex Machina? I watched Ex Machina and I didn't know what to expect, but it was like it was really just kind of creepy and like you know something's wrong, yeah. but you can't put your finger on it, and so you just kind of weirded out the entire time. All right. Any final words about the classic Westworld? If you can tell that. The robots are robots by looking at their hands. How can you tell if the horses and the snakes <laughs> are robots? Like, just let me look at yeah. your hoof one second. Because, like, hooves are fingernails, technically. So, like, I want to see him, like, going over and, like, grabbing some robot horse's foot and just looking at the bottom and it's, like, a little plasticky <laughs> and weird. And you're like, oh, ho, ho, ho. Yeah, that was something that didn't quite make sense, the hand thing. Because like, there the are... snake, I was 100% that that snake was real. I was like, oh my god, he's about to die. And then it was, like, full of circuits. And I was like, excuse me, how am I supposed to tell that that snake isn't real? Like, Westworld is about to get sued if I get bitten by some robot snake. Like, I don't, I don't think so. I'm not having it. Like, can we look, look at your rattle and make sure it's not just, it doesn't look like a baby toy? Like... Okay, we're watching in no particular order here, but next up, we watch the first two episodes of the new AMC show, Humans. What's your first response? I like it. I think it could get more interesting. I also think they 
could have had a better pilot. What didn't you like about the pilot? Well, it cuts... Um, I'm just going to say Merlin because it's Colin Morgan <laughs> and I don't mm -hmm. know his name in this show. Mm -hmm. It cuts from the family to Merlin and like his squad of sentient robots. Mm -hmm. And they're just like running around in the woods of England and I can't tell what's happening. I kind of liked that though. I understand, you know, maybe they've gone too far in the opposite direction. But one thing I don't like about a lot of pilots is they over-explain and so i, like I kind of liked how this one just dropped you in the middle world building <laughs> yeah but they don't need i mean since this is very much we've had this argument before i know because <laughs> i is... like it when people like i like the silmarillion but in this, everything yeah. that i watch <laughs> but this is largely just our real world with robots and so I don't feel there's as much of a need to establish um, all that all that backstory. They can just. But what get happens into it. is you're with the family, and they're like like eating food made for them by their lovely like robot assistant, and the mom's being salty. And then it cuts, and Merlin's just like, "We have to get off the road." And I'm like, "What are you running from? Why is it just one human with a squad of robots? Are they sentient? I can't tell." It it was a bit jarring, but and so I understand how that might not work for someone. But for me, it kind of worked. It suddenly we were getting this little backstory. It's like, wait a minute, now we know why Anita's a little bit different. I mean, we already knew because there was the opening shot where she looked around. She was the only one in a room full of the synths that looked up at the moon, and so we already knew right there. Well, there's something different about this. Also, she's being really sloppy. I just have to say, like, going... There's a scene where she, like, goes outside when she thinks her family's asleep. And she's supposed to be pretending to be, like, a normal, non-sentient robot. And she just, like, goes outside. And then the mom, who's already, like, super suspicious, is like, what are you doing outside? Well, see... It's like, Anita, look at the moon from inside. <laughs> it's gonna be okay. Here's why I disagree with you. Why? Unlike some of the other sentient synths that are established in the first couple of episodes, Anita has been, they attempted to wipe her memory and, and redo her. And so I don't think, I mean, yes, she is being sloppy, but it's because she's not at the top of her game. She's not sure what's going on. I think she's like... It's like a person with amnesia. So I think she kind of goes back and forth between having these flashes. Because, you know, they... She did have, like, p weird PTSD with the rain on the window. Yeah. And and so, yeah, she's she's is behaving strangely because she's not fully in control of her uh, herself. Uh, also, I thought there's a scene where she, like, leaves with one of the kids. And I thought that she was just leaving. But she, like, just went on a walk, apparently. She went on a walk and came back. Which is like... Oh. And then when the mom was asking her about it and she denied it, part of me suspects that she really may not have remembered. She may have been honestly answering, no, that didn't happen, because she's just, she's out of whack. So, I enjoyed the pilot. It's tackling all those same issues that robots, androids, mm -hmm. synthetics, whatever you want to say, all the same issues that... Uh, that the idea brings up, I think it's tackling all those 
uh, pretty well. And I'm tired of the three kid troubled family trope. Is it always like, three kids? I mean, it's not always <laughs> three, but it's always like ti- like small innocent child, mm-hmm. middle neutral child, and older. The rebel. Yeah. And then, like, one of the parents is, like, a little sketchy, and they're, like, arguing, kind of. And I'm just like, get divorced. <laughs> Granted, that, I'm not may, here for this. <laughs> that may be a plot device that is used uh, too frequently. But, you know, I think that's also a common situation in the modern world. But we're not watching sci-fi for common situations. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's, I mean, when you watch something... Part of what makes a show like this compelling is that it is more just our world. Mm -hmm. And so you relate to it. You relate to the characters, how they react, what they're going through. And really, the situations that they are going through, just as far as the varied reactions to a synth in their homes, I think is very realistic. And it's really not that far off in the future. It seems to me inevitable that we will get to that point. It's going to be much further in the future than what's being portrayed in this show because there's a lot of technological hurdles to be overcome. But, I mean, Siri, tell me a joke. I can't. I always forget the punchline. You know, we're already there. <laughs> we talk to these an artificial personality it understands and responds. For Amazon's new AI? Really impressive. And it's just gonna keep going. The AI portion is gonna keep going, and the that's like, you know, the software is gonna keep developing, and then the hardware that you need for increasingly human like robots, that's gonna keep going. They're gonna go together, and sooner or later, you're gonna be sitting across from a computer that looks exactly like a person. And then you're going to be, you know, then it's measure of a man. Yeah. From Star Trek The Next Generation, where Data is put on trial to determine if he's property or not. Or it's uh, the the holographic doctor from Voyager. These issues, these questions, when do the artificial intelligences become sentient and then need to be treated as people instead of as machines? The Amazon Echo is an always-on, internet-connected Bluetooth speaker with an artificial intelligence, and it is called Alexa. I don't like the always-on business. You know, there was a big hullabaloo, if you will, a while back, over voice command television sets. I can't remember which brand it was, but the TV was always listening. Anything you... It heard everything you said. But see, the thing I'm is, not concerned. but it depends on what they do with that, because I think what came out was, uh, you know, it's like targeted ad stuff. They're data mining. It's just like when you're on the Internet and you see yeah. the ads that pop up on the side are will relate see, to what you've been people... doing. But there you're you're like knowingly typing on the Internet when you're just chatting with someone in your living room. You don't necessarily remember. Oh, yeah, the TV's listening. But it's looking, it gets a little creepy. it's looking for keywords. Like, this is the same thing when people were, people are upset because... That's how it starts. Be, yeah, people and are upset. And then it's, Laura, I'm watching you too. People are upset because, um, 
they're, the government is like monitoring your emails or whatever. It's like, but yeah. they're looking for keywords that could suggest that you're up to something that you shouldn't well, be. Well, that's what they say they're doing. <laughs> I mean, but... It doesn't worry me. And Laura, Laura makes me salty because she's got... Obvi- okay, obviously Anita is um, not just a machine, mm-hmm. but she's got this like machine in her home and she's like constantly sassing it it's like you don't need to be sassing that it's like we all sass our phones but with the constant saltiness yeah but this this is the same your your phone doesn't get up in the middle of the night and take your five-year-old daughter out in the rain without your knowledge (laughs) i mean and granted she didn't know that at the time but i mean she was getting a vibe that bothered her you know i really suspect that this debate right here is a generational thing. But my friends complain about the government monitoring stuff too, and I'm just like, it doesn't bother me. Mm. Okay, well, that's interesting. Because I was because I was well, thinking... the thing is, is it's like, would you rather watch an ad for something you're never gonna buy, like like a Chevy, or would you rather watch an <laughs> ad? Like I choose. I choose, um, there's like this new beer commercial commercial on Hulu, which is like, obviously I don't care about the commercial, mm-hmm. but they show these awesome shots of like tropical islands and sometimes Hulu gives you a choice. Yeah. And so I choose that over the Chevy because I would rather watch that mm-hmm. than the Chevy. So if like, if I'm talking about something I want to buy in front of my TV and then it shows me an ad about that thing, I'm not going to mind. Okay. Which yeah. is like, and I see why people could be like, oh, it's always listening, like... Hal nine thousand blot like all this stuff whatever, yeah. but I like it. I've I'm it, I'm not concerned. Hmm. I don't know. I still think there might be a generational aspect to this, even though you're fr- uh, friends. It's just mm-hmm. because a person of your generation has grown up with omnipresent technology. I mean, you are used to the computers being well, I'm everywhere. The f- I'm the first generation that's yeah, been like you're, that. You're used to the. That well, because I remember when the iPod back, Touch came. I remember when you know, Siri came out, and it was so. So, yeah, I, yeah. Where, um, but... of course, when I grew up, you had to get up and most people had to get up off the couch and go manually change the channel. <laughs> I don't think I ever had to do that. With the big ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. <sighs> No buttons. Maybe I the used to The rich people had buttons or remotes. And if you had a remote, it might have been connected by a wire. I can do the whole, you know, old man shtick here. But the point is, is that my... Even as a super geeky guy that sometimes feels like I was born in the wrong time and I was supposed to be born in the future after the invention of warp speed, there are still times where some of that technology encroaches on things that I would rather not have it do. And it's not necessarily the technology itself. You're wondering about the humans on the other end that are controlling the technology. See, but that's the thing is that there's there's like some there's a group of nerds somewhere that programs some sort of thing to check for keywords that could send up alerts right so it's not like there's just people sitting in the pentagon reading your facebook messages it's that's what we like to think (laughs) there's not enough okay think about how big america oh yeah i mean i know they're not sitting and reading everyone's email i I understand it's keywords but still it's uh it's it comes back to that use of technology it it starts to invade every nook and cranny of your life and and we tend myself included to go along with it because it's handy and you know targeted ads are handy 
Although sometimes it is creepy. It's like all of a sudden there's something right there at, and you're like, wow, where did that even come from? It's like it knows everything about me. And it's See, like, well, you just it You does. sound like Ron Swanson to me. Yes. <laughs> like he, look, he looks up of... his house on Google Maps and throws away his computer. Yeah. <laughs> now, let's try to reel it back in from some of the implications and get back to the show itself just as a show. I think one thing that we have to point out is that one of the cast members is uh, Catherine Parkinson, who is on the IT crowd. And the other one is Colin Morgan from Merlin. And But to me, it's very amusing that the one <laughs> yeah. who doesn't like the tech is the one who it's didn't good. get the tech <laughs> on IT crowd and didn't really you know like the nerds. And now here she is, and she's got an Android. I mean, whether or not she likes the nerds is debate. <laughs> As a bit of entertainment that can cause thoughtful comments. It has a rich story that's developing. Yes. Because you have, yes, the kind of tropish family. But then you're starting to get all these other little hints about other things. You've got William Hurt, the fabulous William Hurt, playing the older guy that's like worked on tech back in the day and helped invent some of the, some of the technology that's but running the AI. But he also seems a little, and he's a little off. He's you know he's having some trouble with his uh, he's elderly and he's getting forgetful or whatever. But he's got a rich backstory. He's transferred a lot of stuff, projected a lot of stuff onto his current synth, which he treats like a son. Maybe we're going to learn more about how that happened. Uh, we know that that Merlin was involved. I think they should just call him Merlin. Like was, I'm gonna be real. Like that should just be his name but from now on. Then in the second episode, you know, as always, spoilers. In the second episode, you find out that there's something going on with him though, because he gets wired up. Yeah, he. I was. Yeah. So he's got some sort of cyborgish so thing up. going on because he's bleeding real blood. Whereas the synth have a, some sort of blue although I fluid. do I did I do like the um the the blonde one just busting herself and out. then we got the blonde one who I was so happy she just like killed that guy has, and left I was like this is everything I live for is just people killing like <laughs> <laughs> now that came the across scene, a little creepy the scene was so good um she just snaps and just kills him and leaves you don't, you don't it's real, so you, good you don't feel sorry for the guy but I, I, um <laughs> yeah she throws the uh asimov laws right out the window i like oh that and they, they referenced they yeah they said something they said well, something about like an as the asimov yeah blocks. because when he wrote those original short stories he came up with these three laws of robotics that have become ubiquitous in almost all robot stories since and they use that in here, uh, and in they used that. They name checked it with data and that sort of thing. It's always referenced. Uh, the positronic brain that data had was uh, one of Asimov's words as well. And so, mm -hmm. all robot stories since the fifties owe a debt to what Asimov mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. The main gist of those laws. I'm not going to quote them all, but the main gist is how the the androids are programmed not to hurt humans and to listen to humans and not and so these androids had very strict protocols uh on the now back to the show humans they have very strict protocols about what they can and cannot do but you see those boundaries falling apart because there are the certain synths that that for reasons that have not been explained 
are achieving full sentience and then they can Well, I also think like them. because there was there was a rule about how um they're not allowed to touch people unless it's, unless it's expressly like ordered yep. and then but I think that like if they're sending the synths to take care of old people, mm -hmm. they're not going to care. Like it's all, like already it gets murky there. people don't well it's but it's like already now without the sense people don't really care about the elderly you know that's not really like i feel like if we had since they wouldn't be so careful installing that program and make it about touching them because they're going to be like well if some crazy old man's in the street then their sense got to get him out of the way and they're going to yeah. not care because they won't the elderly community won't have yeah. enough power well, to well, stop that from happening well, there's there's two separate points here. First, the laws of robotics, whether by Asimov or inspired by Asimov, they cannot let humans come to harm. And so there are times where they have to make a decision. Yes, I'm not supposed to touch humans without their express uh, permission, but there's they're a also, carriage also not going yeah, to just stand by and wait for permission if someone's going to get killed. So... Uh, and the fun thing, I don't think you've read the uh, the robot stories, the original robot stories. I don't think so. A lot of those uh, robot stories are, they're clever little puzzle stories because what happens is a robot will do something that seems as though it breaks the rules, but then it turns out that they've been put in some sort of situation where those rules have become hard for the robot to parse and, and, you know, and, and it's like a little logic puzzle. Why did the robot do this? Well, it's because this circumstance and this circumstance made it choose between these two rules and it went and, you know. Uh, and then the second point is the sociological point that you are making, which is fair in that, I think particularly in America, that we do have um, uh, strange relations with the elderly. We don't know how to deal with them. People are uncomfortable and uh, you could just see there's the sort of uh, cliche of the sad, lonely old person in the uh, retirement home, the nursing home. If you could make synth like as portrayed in this show, for the one thing, well, those people wouldn't be lonely. They would have interactions with these synths, but it would also just be a further remove yeah. from actual family and people because it's like you could just have that synth take care of everything and it would you wouldn't feel as guilty because well they're getting this some this synthesized <laughs> companionship so i think that this show will also be able to continue to raise lots of interesting sociological issues like that while also continuing to have the fun sort of science fiction things about seeing how these androids and these synthetics behave shall we do a little parenthetical comment about the similarly titled almost human because that, that raised lots I of similar that issues show. that was a good show and it never caught on enough and it got canceled but that i love carl urban that, i i like he's just like i love his deforest kelly aesthetic <laughs> and that's the perfect description yeah i know <laughs> because he's got he's just he's like old and cranky but he's not old enough to be that cranky yeah and i love it <laughs> it was a fun show and it was developing a larger backstory 
that they really didn't explore. It wasn't shown until quite a ways into the series that this beautiful city they lived in had a wall around it. That was so good. And that was like this big Oh my twist. god, I can't it's believe like, that wait a minute, show what's got outside like, honestly, the wall? I can't believe that show got canceled. And you know, the implication was is that outside the wall it wasn't a beautiful, happy environment like it was inside the wall, but then they never got to explore like that, I'm so salty about that. It's like that it's world. like the Big Bang Theory is still running. <laughs> But we can't have almost human, like unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, and they Let's were. Let's be honest. It's time. <laughs> How many years has it been now? Too many. It's like the fake nerdy show. It's like, oh yeah, nerds watch The Big Bang Theory. No, no. Uh-huh. I have many thoughts on a lot of things. Let's talk about Firefly. Just I've kidding. had a lot of uh, mixed <laughs> But they feelings. got canceled too. <laughs> I've always had very mixed feelings about Big Bang Theory. I'm going to call Nathan Fillion right now. But that is, that is not within the scope Carl of Urban. the theme of this particular episode. So we're going to You know what I get Big really Bang confused about, though, aside. is the country singer Keith Urban. Whenever I hear his name, <laughs> I just have like a... It's like I'm a robot and the wheels are turning, but nothing <laughs> is really happening. Because I'm just like... It just doesn't work. Is there anything else you wanted to say about... Almost human versus Yes, humans. I thought that Dorian was wearing blue contacts, and I've just been informed that he wasn't, and his eyes are just that blue, and it's that's <laughs> illegal, and I'm going to need to have him arrested. Shall we compare and contrast a little? Yes. In the I do world, like Almost Human better. In the I world do. of Almost Human, everyone is pretty accepting of the synths, except... Yes cranky McCoy pants. He's just salty though. I like his, his saltiness is good because he's like, oh, like I can do this myself, whatever. I'm a cranky old man. It's so good. It is While good. Laura is like, she's watching me. And I'm like, she has eyes. <laughs> well, it's an interesting take that it shows two different routes because there are people that are much more comfortable with this kind of technology, and there's people who aren't. And Plus, Urban's character, like, accepts it. Like, Dorian, like, wins his heart. True. Great, great robot-human bromance. And, well, yeah, and they, and they, they, you know, they pretty quickly treat each other, I mean, from the human to the android, they start treating each other like equals. Mm-hmm. And well, and so, Dorian especially is like, I want an apartment. Like, he starts yeah. to... Well, and, and I'm like, yes, yeah, get because it. Because Dorian is from the uh, the um, the line or whatever that developed sentience or near sentience, mm-hmm. whereas the ref- rest of them... And he starts to be like, I don't want to be like in a robots. locker room with a bunch of robots. Yeah. And so... And Carl Urban's like, oh my god... <laughs> <laughs> so in many ways, this is is also kind of a trope of the robot story. The robot that's more than a robot. The mm-hmm. robot that exceeds its programming. Mm-hmm. And that is what the Doctor was on Voyager, a hologram who exceeded his programming. That was so good. And there's the synths in uh, humans that have exceeded their programming. And then there were the, uh, the Dorian line, whatever mm-hmm. it was called, mm-hmm. that was doing what they wanted and got in trouble so they mm-hmm. had locked them all down but then except for Dorian but then Dorian they brought out just because they thought he could deal with the the urban character's he's a crankiness I do like Almost Human better a lot better I really like Almost Human 
obviously it'd be a little weird to have something that looked and spoke so like a person in your home. Mm-hmm. But like the guy whose wife was like in an accident and their synth is like, I made you sandwiches and we'll be home for dinner. And he's like, I hate you. <laughs> I'm like, he made you sandwiches. Like, I can't, like yeah, but- if somebody was like, your husband told me you wouldn't be home for dinner, so I made you these sandwiches here. I'd be like, oh my god, no way. But it's also the same situation that caused the man's wife to say to him, I'd rather have the robot take me to because it knows what I need. <laughs> you can see how... But it's like a health robot. Yeah, but you can see how the real person, the biological person, can start f- feeling pushed aside. And, and that's a, a big issue... With... See, I, I do see that, but, yeah. like, if my future husband feels pushed aside when I go to the doctor instead of letting him, like, like sti- if I get a cut and need, it needs stitches or something, it's like, friend, because I feel like that, that synth was, like, a nurse, and he's, like, yeah. salty because this, like, the, the nurse is better at helping his yeah, well, wife with, his, with her medical condition. But, but you could actually just put aside whether it's a synth or a real person. If but you if you get in a position where someone else seems to be taking better care of your spouse than you can and and your spouse seems to be, you know, happy with that, it's understandable that you could feel uh pushed aside and I think that that feeling would be exacerbated then if the <laughs> If the person that was pushing you aside wasn't a real person, <laughs> and 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 I like, think it's I a very natural human reaction. I can see the reaction. steps that made him react that way. Yeah, I just don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> I need some Vulcans in this show. <laughs> I love uh, I I love it when they're just like. Um, ex- like, somebody will be like, how do you think that makes, like, Tuvok feel? And Tuvok's like, excuse me, I don't feel. <laughs> like, they always have to interject it. So, like, whenever people are doing something stupid, they're like, hey, calm down for a second. And just see the white light that is your breath. And that's what every TV show needs. I'm dead serious. <laughs> I just want, whenever someone, like, um, oh my god, like, telenovelas. Uh, whenever someone starts screaming, I just want Tuvok to just randomly step in the frame and just <laughs> close your eyes and see the white light that is your breath. <laughs> and some like dramatic Hispanic woman is just like breathing on camera <laughs> instead of screaming and it'd be perfect. I honestly think you need to sit down and take a stress pill <laughs> yeah. and calmly think about how Jorge has stolen your wife's affections. Exactly. I'd watch that telenovela. <laughs> 2004's I, Robot, starring Will Smith as every character that Will Smith has ever played in a movie. <laughs> it's always the same. And tiny Shia LaBeouf. And, uh, yeah. So, this is my first time for this movie. Your second time. Mm-hmm. What did you think... Upon the review. I liked it better in the seventh grade. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the reason that I had never seen this movie before is because I had assumed from what I saw in the previews that I would not like the movie. And so now I've seen it, and I know that I was right. 
in my assumption. <laughs> I did not like this movie in two ways. The thing that frightened me off of it in the first place was because it was such a liberal adaptation inspired by, or however they phrased it in the credits, by the... Suggested ad- by. Suggested by, yes. Which really just amounted to, we're going to take the three laws of robotics and then we're going to make a big cliche action-adventure robot movie that's like every other big cliche science fiction action-adventure movie that you've ever seen. Except it has the three laws. As an adaptation, it was only suggested by, so maybe it's unfair to even judge it as an adaptation. But you know, but if if I did, I would say it really failed almost entirely as an adaptation, but it was suggested by. But then even just as a movie, although it was hard for me to set aside my knowledge of the source material, just even as a movie, to me, it didn't do anything new and it, I didn't. I thought the character motivations were strange. I don't know. Before I rant and rave, why don't you say a few more things? So you enjoyed it in the seventh grade. I don't know. I like it. I mean, it's not you know um, the best movie ever, and it has a few problems, but they're small. And it's a. It's. I think it. I think it is what it was supposed to be. I think it could have been better, but I don't know. Still kind of fun to watch. I didn't really have that much fun. Even just as a piece of popcorn entertainment, it didn't work for me. I thought the tone was off. On the one hand, we have a certain kind of sci-fi movie. And on the other hand, we have the Will Smith wisecracking kind of character. To me, those were two different things stuck together. And they did not work like a Reese's cup, sticking the two things together. You'd have this sort of serious sci-fi scene going on, and then it'd be like, okay, Will, now you mug for the camera like you've done in every role. Or you say some, you know, funny street-talking thing. And it just seemed forced to me, you know, like these forced comic relief scenes. I didn't think it seemed forced. I think it was definitely the type of movie that Will Smith would be in. I think they definitely were going for more action-adventure than sci-fi. I'm going to jump way to the end and point out an example of one of the things that bothered me. Character motivation. It's a big deal for me when I'm reading a book or watching a film. I want to have a sense of why the characters act the way they do and and have a certain... um, consistency and it's a hallmark of lazy writing that those details get shoved aside when the story demands it my examples from the end of the movie they're going to try to take out the mainframe that hosts the evil computer program and they make a big bit of business about establishing Will Smith's character is not fond of heights. Then things start to go south, (laughs) and suddenly he's... They made a big bit of business about him not liking heights? Yeah, he was all hesitant. He didn't want to... He's like, what is it it with you people in heights? And he didn't want to walk on the catwalk over to the thing, and he was like, and he's, you know... I mean, it... Perhaps saying a big bit of business is overstating it, but he was uncomfortable having to go out on the catwalk to access the thing. But then, as soon as the bad robots come in, 
Then he's leaping all over the place like he hasn't a care in the world. Oh, there's something being thrown through the air for me to catch. I'll just leap out into the middle of nowhere. And there was no sense of him having to overcome this fear. It's like, why did they even take the time to develop this? Then they didn't do anything with it. And to me, that happened a number of times in the movie that the characters behaved in a way that they needed just to further the plot, not in a way that would make sense for those characters. You know, his boss keeps yelling at him about what's your problem, <laughs> even though, you know, a whole house has been destroyed around him. And, and, and I mean, there, were, there was tangible evidence in some cases that something was going funky with the robots, and no one would notice all this mayhem the destruction time of the house was changed. We as viewers see that the destruction time of the house changes, and so then the robot starts destroying the house. But the robot would have been aware that there was someone in the house. That was still a huge malfunction on the part of the robot, and no one even mentioned that. And they didn't mention it because the drivings of the plot needed everyone to think that he was just being paranoid and nothing was really going on. But in order to do that, they had to have characters just sort of conveniently ignore huge pieces of evidence. So there's the big chase scene in the tunnel with the two giant things full of robots that come out. And there's a huge extended chase scene and a splody, splody action and all sorts of stuff go on. And then we have to believe that everything has been cleaned up. So by the time the cops get there, it can just look like he's being a paranoid freak that's caused all the problems that wasn't developed in a way that I believed it. I just found myself disbelieving plot points and character behavior throughout the film. Comments? After my rant about why I disliked it? Am I taking it too seriously? Yeah. <laughs> but we've talked about this before. People say, it's just a popcorn movie. And what's my response? Do you remember? No. Yeah, but I want good popcorn. I want fresh pop popcorn with real butter on it. And once again, this was stale popcorn in a plastic bag from a vending machine. Although I will say that as the voice of Sonny, I enjoyed that it was uh, Alan Turek from uh, <laughs> Firefly. That was nice. Doing his best Hal impression. Yeah. So, you still enjoyed it as a popcorn movie. Mm -hmm. Although not as much now that you're older and, and you know... Mm -hmm. more discerning as far as elements of movie making. I disliked it, but let's talk about it a little bit in the bigger picture as an example of the robot theme movie. I think, I actually, for what the movie was, I think they did a pretty good job in using the philosophies and uh, to some extent using Asimov's laws. There's a really good line about... Um, symphonies and paintings where will mm -hmm. smith says you know can a robot write a symphony can a robot turn a canvas into a ma into a masterpiece and sunny says well can you that was my favorite line in the whole film and then will smith is like oh man i just got dissed by this robot <laughs> just i just got, got miley what's gooded by this robot by the robot yeah that was my that really was my favorite line in the film because that was one of the things that was one of the places where they did take advantage of of what was going on to sort of make a bigger comment. I mean, it's the same kind of comments that all robot movies have made since the beginning of robot movies, but 
those comments are always relevant because it's it's something that we are constantly going through, questioning what makes us human, what makes you know machines separate as they get smarter and smarter and smarter. And the more we talk to Siri and Alexa, the more we're going to have those those questions. They did hit some of those key motifs. One thing that I was amused by was how much the uh, grumpy urban character from Almost Human was in some ways the same as the Will Smith character. It's like, so they're both people who've had to get, against their will, a robotic limb replacement, and they hold a grudge against That was one of the the only things I didn't like about the movie in the rewatch, because Mm -hmm. in the flashbacks of the car crash where he's supposed to have lost his arm, it's Mm -hmm. like, he looks fine. It's like, how, like... When they finally gave us the full flashback... And the 11% survival chance of the little girl. It's mm-hmm. like, she seems... F- she's banging on that glass. She seems yeah, fine to me. That that was the only plot point that bugged me. And then um, I think they went a little bit too far with the action. Like when he goes off the jump and he like jumps off his bike and he's like firing two guns at the same time. <laughs> it's like... Like it's like classic action adventure firing two guns at the same time. But also, it clashes with the sci-fi, and then when they're f- he's doing like a skydive, yeah, in the building. But I mean, I think you know I they almost, did what they were trying to. I so. almost started laughing when he did the motorcycle jump and then leaped off the motorcycle and was I did. Shooting I was like, two guns Will in the Smith, air. yeah. I mean, that that was just ridiculous within the context of the film. And I like little Shia LaBeouf, though. You still should feel some fear for his ability to survive. And when he starts doing stuff like that, and all he has to do is just, like, land and roll, tuck and roll, it takes away from the, the character. But back to you were saying about that the car wreck, when you get when you get the full flashback, yeah, I, I thought that that was poorly staged to, to really make it seem like it matched the story he told. Because he has the entire, the full arm is robotic and three of his ribs. I was half expecting to see that when the robot yanked him out of the car, that like his arm stayed in there. (laughs) You know, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be gruesome. And then it's like, oh, he just pulled him out. And it's like, well, I really don't buy that. And I also didn't buy that the robot wouldn't have had time to then go get the girl in the car. I just... That could have been staged better. That was really my only problem. Yeah, that that was poorly... uh, that that bit of action was poorly captured, and it didn't seem to match to his narration of of what happened. He had all this anger at the robot because it at robots in general because they it saved him instead of the little girl. You know that was a nice backstory. They leave that up in the air for quite a bit of the film. You're really wondering what's his beef? Why is he so against the robots? It was almost a little distracting because it was just like, well, he really does seem irrational. And then you realize, you know, why he feels that way. And then they did make that part of the plot that the scientist who was killed, or actually had himself killed to set this in motion, that he knew that he could play the character's prejudices and that he would keep looking into the mystery where everyone else would just Mm -hmm. assume, well... Robots can't do anything. But is even that that realistic? The idea that everyone would just be completely satisfied with robots being completely safe? Because it's not I like... I think the majority of the populace would have to be in order for something like a company like that to work. Yeah, but, you know, we all work with computers every day. And how often do we spend time on our computers cursing Bill Gates or, you know, because computers don't work all the time. 
software, the hardware, things go wrong, your hard drive dies, you're yelling at your computer because the hard drive is dying. And so the idea that any machine could be made perfectly safe, there's nothing to worry about, is a little, you know, I, I don't know if everyone would buy into it as much. And one of the recurring motifs in these robot movies is that everyone buys it except the one person that then everyone kind of looks at like, what's your problem? <laughs> so I liked how the guy that played his boss sounded exactly like his character from Pushing Daisies. Yeah. <laughs> um, He's a great character actor. And I liked uh, how, um, I don't remember the name of the actor that played, um, oh, the guy that recruits Kirk in the new Star Trek movie. Oh, um, Bruce Greenwood. I liked how Bruce Greenwood um, has, like, the same exact line that he has in Star Trek. Like, at one point, he's, like, yelling at us, and he's like, you of all people. I just had, like, a flashback to Star Trek. Like, you of all people. Oh, my gosh. That was the same line, I know. Line, it's wasn't the exact it? same line. And I was just like, where's five, Chris Pine? Five years earlier. It's like, I just want Chris Pine to walk in a frame and slap Will Smith across <laughs> the face. <laughs> I, I really hope that someday someone tries to reboot the property and give us something that's closer. I mean, it, it would be a challenge because it's a series of short stories, but there are continuing characters, like the character of uh, Dr. Calvin. I think she was much more prominent in a lot of the short stories than what she was in here. Here she was just kind of along for the ride. She was able to come through at the end and help, but... Um, there's actually a really amazing screenplay that was written by Harlan Ellison that is uh, adapts iRobot and kind of frames it like a Citizen Kane kind of story. I want to see um, iRobot. I, I Robot by I the Roomba. iRobot Ru <laughs> <laughs> by the Russo brothers. Mm. I Russo bot. <laughs> oh, but would they be they, able to make a, yes, a quiet because, little yes, film? Dad. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to debate about the Russo brothers. I was going to say that they could bring the nice action along with the good plot line because just think about Winter Soldier. And then just have confidence that everything will be okay. But no, Dad, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but it it doesn't need to be a big giant explosion. Not big giant explosion. It wouldn't be like Hydra because... infiltrating shields. Okay, <laughs> it'd be like real low key. Real <laughs> low key, just robots start to kind of get a little twitchy, and then every once in a while, I gotta punch somebody. Well, yep. Yeah. The uh, oh my gosh. You just almost quoted a line from Aliens, which I don't believe you've actually seen yet. I haven't seen Aliens. <laughs> which we need to uh, remedy. And, of course, I did kind of think about the Alien movies because a android plays a big part in, in those movies. So it was on my short list of movies to, to watch for this episode. But um, so many movies... So little time. I had to, Anyways, uh, had to narrow it down somehow. Punch a malfunctioning robot in the face. Mm -hmm. Holla at your boy Data. And then you get out. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what other motifs Just, yeah. <laughs> of the robot film were covered punch in B4 this. Punch B4 in the face. 
Holla at your boy Data. B4's got it coming. <laughs> just for the name alone. Although I guess it's unfair to hold his name against him since he didn't name himself, but... <laughs> All right. B4 would be the malfunctioning robot. And yeah. Data would be the one that's like, uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure about this, guys. Mm -hmm. He'd be the Rob Benedict of the movie. The Rob Benedict. Yeah. I'm not so sure about this, Rich. I don't know if this is such a good idea. <laughs> so, do you think there's a single person in our audience that knows the reference you've just made? Um, you, you know, you I don't so. know, but uh, <laughs> if there is, they need um, to. They need to. They need, they to, need email to email me yeah. about love. Email and us. If you, Hashtag MinCon min 2015. <laughs> MinCon 2015, R2M panel. Uh, Somebody help, I don't know what to do with my life anymore. Okay. Wasn't a Rick and, I, have to, I have to reiterate that that wasn't a Rick and Morty reference. Okay? Yes. I just want everyone to know that. I don't... I don't. <laughs> Let's see, do we have any final thoughts on iRobot? iRobot is a really good movie to watch in your sci-fi elective instead of doing actual schoolwork. I can understand the appeal for watching a movie instead of having to do actual schoolwork. It was schoolwork, so great. But there are so many other much, much better robot-themed movies that could have been watched. I would watch it again at, like, a sleepover where you're, like, yelling at the screen the whole time and, like, throwing popcorn. <laughs> I wouldn't be opposed to watching it again. Mm. I really could have lived without having seen the film, but this just this is just an example of the lengths that I will go to put together this podcast. I will watch a movie that I know I'm not going to like and is going to bother me that I've seen it for the rest of my life. But that's what I do for this show. That must be really difficult for you. <laughs> you have our sympathies. <laughs> 2001's AI. Artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fitting and came out in 2001 because this was a project that Stanley Kubrick was working on for a long time and didn't get to. And then Spielberg then came in after Kubrick's death and made the movie. This one is uh, interesting on a variety of levels. It's the first one that is really, really from the robot's point of view. Mm -hmm. Where the uh, other movies tend to be from the human's point of view, even if the uh, robots, um, like, say, in Almost Human, even if they're significant characters, you're still really seeing it from the human's point of view. Now, I've seen this movie before once or twice. This was your first time. What was your first reaction? It was really good. I'm so glad you liked it. it I did. Because I'm very, very fond of this movie. I think it has a couple of issues that make it challenging, but I like them. Some people really dislike some of its challenging aspects, and we'll talk about those as we go on. Uh, one thing I was amused by seeing it now, after all these years, is that <laughs> William Hurt is in it, almost playing the same character that he plays in Humans. William Hurt plays the old guy in humans that's hiding the older synth in his backyard and and worked mm -hmm. on developing the AI program mm -hmm. at some point in the past and in AI he played the guy who made the David Mecca oh 
it's the same guy. Uh-huh. So he is now in two different mediums, movies and TV, played a guy instrumental in the development of artificial intelligence mm-hmm. <laughs> and dealing with the uh, after effects of that. And in both cases is using the AI that he's created as a substitute for his lost son. I think that this just indicates not that these movies and TV shows are ripping each other off, but that they can't help but approach some of those same motifs. Will artificial intelligence be used to replace people? You know, This is a, a common theme in the holodeck and other things. It's like, could you use these things to bring back in some way your lost loved ones? Is that a good idea or not? Is it healthy or not? Those are interesting things that are uh, talked about in these movies. The only thing I didn't get was like, so they're making these like robot children, but it's like they don't grow. So you like sell them to families and then they just have this perpetual like eight-year-old robot. Yeah, it's a little creepy. That they're taking care of that can't eat or sleep. In some ways, it doesn't make sense because in the long run, it would just be a heart-wrenching experience for everyone involved. And that's, of course, what happens in this movie as well. If you can't make your AI grow, it it just seems like that's going to not work. And perhaps that ties in nicely with the fact that it is a little unhealthy. If you're looking at this as a replacement for someone you've lost then you just end up kind of staying in that past. You know, you're staying with this unaging child. Seems seems like it would get a little creepy. Yeah, and then they, like, weirdly, like, their kid, like, wakes up from his coma, and then they, like, weirdly keep David and are pseudo-acting like it's his brother. I don't, and I, was think like... it's, I don't think it's weird within the context oh. of the film because I think enough time had passed that... Not the not the father character, but the mother had clearly bonded with the AI uh, and felt the mother-son relationship. So I can understand why she would have wanted to keep David, especially because she was more sensitive to the idea that because he had been programmed to bond to her, if they brought him back, he would just be destroyed because they don't re-bond the the AIs with other Yeah, and then I also thought, couples. like, she... I don't know. I didn't like her. She was... And then she... Because then she takes him back because, like, her real son almost drowns. And then uh, she's like, just kidding. I'm just going to leave you here in the woods by yourself. Well, I think it's a very unfair phrase to say, just kidding. She <laughs> was in an unwinnable situation. She, because she had gotten to the point where she couldn't trust David's behavior around her biological son, she felt that she had no choice but to bring him back to the company. But the idea that the company would just destroy him also broke her heart. She couldn't imagine him being killed, essentially. And so she was in a no-win scenario, and so she changed her mind at the last minute and just said, you have to run, and set him free. Obviously, none of, none of these choices were optimal. I thought that was more cruel than it would have been to just bring him back to the company, because the way the robots are built, and the way that they bond to one person, mm-hmm. like her leaving him there in the woods, um, 
was going to be like this perpetual sad existence for him. Yeah. Like there was no way that he could have led like um a life like some of the robots that live in Rouge City. Mm-hmm. No, um, I, yeah, I, I agree that a, a very rational argument could be made that she made the wrong decision. She made the decision like, that made her feel better, but the life that he was going to be most likely doomed to lead would just be one of, of pain and, and uh, horrible, yeah. you know, and, and probably coming to a... I mean, yeah. there's no way that she could have known, but, you know... He was probably doomed to come to a quick end anyway. Yeah. And in a horrible and terrifying way. Yeah. By the people that were destroying robots. Because she like puts it down and she's like, stay away from flesh fairs. And it's like, so hey, it, the flesh fairs in town, she, it's like two miles away. Yeah, it's like, so just ditch him near one of those. She, uh, yeah. I, see, I, I think that she wasn't thinking rationally at the time because she was in this horrible situation. I liked, um,. Joe Lotruglio. <laughs> I want I want to see Joe Lotruglio playing that guy. Um no that that uh, robot was fun. Well, they did an interesting well, the fabulous Jude Law, he's such a fun actor and he was given this really unique role that the his robot was programmed to behave in a very happy-go-lucky weird dancing <laughs> kind of way and 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 he did a a great job. Okay, I'm going to talk about some symbolism. Okay. That I found very, very interesting. Okay. So in the beginning, their biological child is being held in cryogenic stasis because he's got some sort of disease or something that was fatal and they didn't have a cure for it. Mm-hmm. And so he's just in in the cryogenic sleep and they come and read to him every now and then and it's very sad and then they start thinking, the, both the father and the doctor are a little concerned that the mother isn't facing up to the probable end game here, that the biological child isn't going to survive. And so the father uh, decides to take up his company's offer to bring home the child robot, which he definitely thinks of as just a machine. But there's an interesting contrast there because you find yourself sort of thinking, well, but which of these things is more alive, the artificial boy or the biological boy who's in cryogenic sleep so that's kind of interesting but the really interesting thing about it is the biological boy is in cryogenic sleep but then against all odds they find a way to cure him and revive him so after a long period of being frozen he is able to reunite with his mother and at the end of the movie after David goes through a long period of being frozen, he's able to be reunited with his mother. That's kind of cool. That is cool. It's a cool movie. I liked the weird glowy aliens excavating Earth. I really liked that. Let's talk about that for a little bit, because the third act from out of nowhere is one thing that I think general audiences had trouble with. That you have it was, a movie... It was really like, I don't know, it was quick. It was just like, it's, it was sudden. It is out of nowhere. It it's is, like, here's it is, some... It is literally like, out of nowhere because there is nothing in the movie leading up to that point that would have, allow you to predict that. Other than that, you know that this robot is probably essentially 
immortal as long as nothing horrible happens to him. So you know that he's going to live for a long, long time, but you never expect this. Suddenly, he gets trapped underwater, and then we jump forward 2,000 years. <laughs> I mean, it's... And, and then you get a significant portion of the film that's set after then he is revived by aliens uh, who, who are basically like on an archaeological study of Earth and humans. There are no humans left, and they are amazed by David because they know that he was actually alive and functioning when there were humans living. He can act, He's a person who's encountered humans face-to-face, first-person, and they haven't, except for their attempts at recreating humans from DNA samples. This movie is almost like three movies, because you have the story, the, the tragic story of David and his biological family. That could be a whole story unto itself that ends tragically. Then you have a long second act that is David with his artificial family, so to speak, that he creates with, or at least his friends. He's got Teddy, the super toy. That's so weird and funny how they pull it off. I don't understand how they pulled that off. I love that character. I love how when they get trapped underwater, Teddy just says, what happened? We're in a cage because this Ferris wheel yeah. has collapsed on them. So there are these, you know, bar like things. I just, I love the character of Teddy. He doesn't have a t- tremendous amount of, of character, but he understands what's going on a lot. You know, he watches the two boys and he knows that things are going bad with the Yeah, when he, um, boy. when David goes to eat like the spinach and yeah. Teddy grabs and says, You'll break. Yeah, it's so weird. I I don't I don't understand how they pulled that off. Like it worked so well. Mm-hmm. Like I was watching Jude Law like drag around this teddy bear, this talking like sentient teddy bear, and I was like, <laughs> how is this working? Just having this character that's a talking teddy bear. Yeah, like a like a salty teddy bear. And then, <laughs> so then there's this like the middle act with him and Joe and Teddy. That also seems like it's kind of a story unto itself. Mm-hmm. It's like the robots trying to uh, maintain their freedom and escape the e- the evil humans. And then you get a bonus third movie at the end. <laughs> That's the experience between uh, David and the aliens. And I think the fact that the movie had these radical shifts in tone. You start out with a heart-wrenching family melodrama. Then it turns into a little bit of this dark, gritty adventure. And then at the end, it turns into this really hard sci-fi situation where it's 2,000 years in the future and bizarre aliens are excavating. Let's talk a little bit about recurring motifs so that we're sort of comparing and contrasting mm-hmm. AI with the other films and TV shows that we've talked about. One of the motifs that's definitely uh, repeated in here is the idea of robots dreaming. Mm-hmm. David wants to dream, but he doesn't really dream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he, he doesn't really like sleep. But he has these powerful wishes that are almost like daydreams. Mm-hmm. There was a very interesting arc in Star Trek The Next Generation about data dreaming. In iRobot, Sonny had dreams 
that were kind of little secret messages to him from the uh, programmer. Mm -hmm. There was another scene that kind of amused me because there was a sort of crazy laugh scene like what was in humans. Mm -hmm. In humans, their synth has a strange outburst of laughter and then just keeps laughing and going on until it just gets creepy and they tell her to stop. And there was a scene in AI where David bursts out laughing for the first time and it's kind of just unnerving at first, but in, in this one, the family kind of goes along with it and then he stops <laughs> appropriately and doesn't like keep, keep going on forever and ever. But I think that's an interesting motif, both of those, because it's uh, talking about things that seem... Um, that people think of as being intrinsically human, like, say, laughter. And so when a robot laughs, is it real or is it just this, you know, programmed thing? Fits into some of the recurring questions people have about artificial intelligence. You want to know what would have made this movie better? What? If David uh, or Martin were played by Tiny Will Wheaton. <laughs> Anytime I watch a movie let's, with like a little boy in it, I'm just like, talk, I just want that to be little Will Wheaton. That's let's all talk I want. About, let's talk about Martin. Okay. The biological boy. Because he's a little harsh on his uh, pseudo-brother. He definitely has mixed feelings about him. In some scenes, he comes across kind of insensitive, because he really does treat David, for the most part, as just a machine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's also a young kid that's just come out of a cryogenic stasis and yeah like imagine if you woke up from a coma and you came and home like, and your parents oh, had replaced you with a this robot weird robot kid so i find that uh, you know you have a great deal of sympathy for him even when he's being cruel he defends him a little bit like with his his friends were like shoving him around and like poking yeah. him and stuff and he was kind of like stop but he yeah. like i think that's in in, in many ways still very real sibling behavior. It's like, you, I get to push my little brother around, mm-hmm. but no one else does. And so he does come to his defense there. Uh, unfortunately, then David has another weird malfunction glitch loop thing, and that leads to him being sent away. But Martin's manipulation of David, when he gets him to go and cut a lock of mm-hmm. the mom's hair... It was kind of reminiscent of the three laws. You know, the, yeah. the, the, the three laws aren't specifically called out in this movie. They don't necessarily give that tip of the hat to Asimov. But the way he kind of tricks him into promising to do something without knowing what it was, and then David is definitely put into conflict because... He feels as though he's agreed to do something, but then when he finds out what it is, it seems like it's something he shouldn't do. Then he's kind of tricked into doing it by Martin. And then that went very badly for him just by chance. If his mother had never woken up, he could have cut the lock of hair and everything would have been fine. But she did wake up and roll over and almost got poked in the eye by the scissors. And it turns into a whole situation because the father, even though he was the one that brought the thing home... He never warms up to David at all and is very suspicious of it. So he Well, kinda... but he was more like because they were like the the first test family. Yeah. Nobody had one and they were and well, they chose him out of their employees and he was he said yeah. something about how much trust they had placed in him, so he was like I need to do this because it's yeah. good for my but, career. Well, nobody had a child 
Mecca, but the world, I mean, there were uh, adult Meccas all over the place. But and, David was the most lifelike. Yeah. So in the family drama portion of the film, he fulfilled the role, the motif of the human that doesn't trust the robots. Mm-hmm. Whereas she, although uncomfortable at first, warmed up to it and definitely started treating him like a real boy. And like a lot of, speaking of that real boy terminology, it plays off Pinocchio, and that is a recurring theme in Mm -hmm. robot things. One of the heart-wrenching things about the journey that the David character takes Mm -hmm. is that from the beginning... He wants to be real, and yet over and over and over again, he's confronted by his artificiality. Like, say, Martin starts chewing with his mouth open and, you know, being goofy food stuff, and he goads David into putting food into his mouth, and they're not made (laughs) to do that, and he gets broken. He has to go in to be repaired. So he's trying to be real, and every time he tries to be real, he ends up just having it thrown back in his poor little face that, no, you are not a real boy. It's a much more emotional movie. In a lot of movies like Westworld or iRobot, although iRobot had Sonny as a sympathetic robot character, lots of times the robots, you know, the, the one person, there's one person that's skeptical and they're proven right. And the robots turn out to be the bad guys. And then there's not as much emotional stuff going on. Where in this movie, there's a lot more layers going on where you end up being very sympathetic with the robots and you see a lot of human behavior at its worst. So it kind of subverts the storyline compared to a lot of other movies. And in some ways, though, it still goes back to one could say a prototype robot story, even though it's not actually a robot story, Frankenstein. It's the same theme where artificially made life, is it good, is it bad, who's the monster? In Frankenstein, it kind of turns around. We think of Frankenstein's monster or Frankenstein's creature, but in the end, the nameless creature is more sympathetic and has been ill-treated by his creator. And that's something that turns up in some of these robot movies. You are reminding me really heavily of an episode of Supernatural. And why is that? Um, In the last season, there was like a mini plot arc with this family, the Steins, and it turns out they're like, oh, like descendants of Frankenstein. And there's this kid who, uh, in the family, who's like not with it. Like he is like planning to move to like LA. He wants to get away from his family, but he's taken on... um, his first, like, mission, and his first mission is, uh, like, to infiltrate the Winchester bunker with his cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, but he's, uh, his cousins are like, oh, we're gonna burn everything because it's full of books. And he's like, I don't think we should do that. Like, we don't have to. Um, and then Dean comes home and kills all his cousins. And he's like, wait, I'm different. And Dean's like, okay, but then shoots him anyway. So then it's like, well, who's <laughs> the monster? Yeah, yeah. But Dean also has the mark of Cain. And and this is one of the reasons that I like genre fiction, because you can use these very wild premises to ask these questions in ways that are very compelling and entertaining at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
Because it forces you to ask questions like that, yeah, especially exactly. especially um, movies like AI in 2001. Um, you that have to ask yourself questions. Yes. That so reminds like, me of another thing I wanted to talk about, the ending of AI compared to the ending of 2001. Because in an, in an interesting way, they both have endings that take a big shift yeah. from the earlier part of the movie, which although the settings are fantastic, are still kind of mundane stories compared to a big twist at the end. At 2001, you get this like, oh my gosh, we're like watching the future evolution of the human species or something. And then in AI, you get the huge jump forward in time and humans are gone, but then there are these amazing aliens there that are studying humans and 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 trying to bring them back similar in a way to the unseen alien force in 2001 which has been uh experimenting with humans throughout their evolution and so again it's interesting that this is something that had been a kubrick project because you can see the elements mm-hmm. in this story that would have appealed to kubrick's sensibility in in some ways, it retains some of its Kubrickosity, <laughs> and it but it also has the certain elements that you can see why Spielberg would be drawn to it because it's got like the troubled family thing that features so much in Spielberg's work, and so you get this interesting hybrid where it's got some of the touchy feely yeah, Spielberg, Spielberg stuff and it's okay. got some of the it's got some of the detached more clinical Kubrick stuff I just, just like sit him movie. down give him a hot chocolate be like are you okay buddy you want to talk about something here's a question for you anything going on <laughs> I think little Steven is doing just fine on top of his pile of money you can't buy happiness dad <laughs> you really liked the aliens at the end of AI I just like to watch and here's a question for you. Reminded me of bioluminescent plankton. Yeah. Here's a question for you that fits in, once again, to the theme of the film and robot films in general. What's real? What's not? What's the difference between organics and mechanics? Because what do you think those aliens were? Do you think they were biological? Do you think they were machines? Do you think they I were some combination? Tell because... The way they were kind of like, they were kind of like just downloading information. And I couldn't tell if that was supposed to be that they were like telepath. I was like, okay, so they're telepathic, but it really seems like they're just downloading images. Yeah. I think that they were some sort of cyborg almost, that that they were some sort of Mm -hmm. nanobiologic hybrid something or other, because they had a very interesting ship. Their transport that brought them to the location where they were excavating was like this thing that when it got there, then it disassembled into smaller parts and like went away, which to me seems like nanotechnology. Mm -hmm. And, And at a glance, they seem like they're more biological, but then when they kind of can reach out and just like sync up with David's artificial brain, then that seems more mechanical. And that makes me think, man, I think that they're some sort of blend of the two. In some ways, they kind of answer the question about 
what's real is a machine organic they were like, just like really calming <laughs> yeah they were <laughs> like just like the leader that was i just want to like listen to him talk i, also I wish th- he was voiced by tom opennicott i i uh i also <laughs> thought like that the, the look that's the sort of mm-hmm. tall skinny look that they had to him i think purposefully evoked the tall skinny aliens at the end of close encounters of the third kind Ooh. and even when the first alien sort of reached onto the mm-hmm. frame and its hand mm-hmm. came up mm-hmm. toward david it's like that looked just like mm-hmm. the way the the hand of one of the the animatronic hand this was cgi of course in close encounters it was an animatronic hand that reached out and then the hand kind of tilted up so i think that spielberg was giving a little nod back to himself there and and i thought Man, it worked generations well. geek road trip to devil's tower oh my gosh would that be amazing I, i've i've been there <laughs> because you've been there and i have I've been not, there sadly. see now imagine imagine you're staying in a campsite uh directly across from devil's tower and you wake up in the middle of the night because the cows in the field behind you are screaming <laughs> like Something scared the cows. <laughs> and we just wake up because all these cows are like losing their minds and like devil's towers just, you know, because it, it blocks out everything. So like even at night, yeah. it, there's just this shape because it blocks out the stars. Yeah. So it was dark and then there was just black right where the tower was. <laughs> then you wake up and you're like, why are the cows screaming? <laughs> like the aliens are here. It's uh, time to go. <laughs> Pack up. Okay. Let's bring it back. Let's let's wrap it all up in a bow now. We watched Westworld, iRobot, and AI as mm-hmm. the movies. And then we watched some humans. We also reflected back on Almost Human. Talked a little about data here and there. So what do you think? Robots, in general, will they be good or bad when they come? Uh, depends on who makes them and what they're made for. Yeah. What will they do? Will turn into the, uh, will they, will we have like, to welcome is it gonna be like our a Jurassic World robot guy overlords? Taking <laughs> robot velociraptors to war? <laughs> or is it gonna be like Chris Pratt just saying that they're, that they're okay, but we need to leave them where they are? Yeah. yeah. As I've mentioned earlier in the discussion, I think that AI is inevitable. Even if it never reaches full consciousness like organics, I think that programs like Siri and Alexa will just get more and more and more refined to the point where it'll be difficult not to interact with them as if they are people. The thing that um, never comes up in robot movies when they are debating these issues is they never say well but wait a minute haven't you read isaac asimov (laughs) (laughs) you know it's uh, for the for the drama of these films they always take place as if people have never asked these questions before and it's only dawning on them now that there's robots in their house like wait a minute this this is creepy and so i think the difference will be that we are very aware of these questions we watch these movies, we read the books, everyone wonders about it. And so as we get further and further along, these questions are going to be asked all the time. And I think that that will help uh, mitigate 
some of these problems that you can foresee. See, but when we were watching iRobot, I was like, man, this is weird. I would never become so dependent on a technology. And then I was like, we're already dependent on technology. Like, think about cars. It like, creeps up on you. When we didn't have a car, we were, like, stuck. Like, if our car just broke in the driveway, like, there's no there's no horse in the backyard <laughs> yeah. to ride to school on. We don't have backups our computers, for things. Our phones. Yeah. And so... We are a very technological society. They're very our dependent. refrigerators? Uh, yeah, we're very dependent imagine on our machines. Imagine if there was a refrigerator revolt. And, uh... <laughs> imagine. Dad. Oh. If the the ice cream. If, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I know. What, if the, what if the freezer was melting my Ben and Jerry's? On purpose. You just, you can't trust a freezer. They will turn on you. I don't trust Like freezers. a snake in the grass. I know it will. Just like in Westworld. So... They will hunt you down like Yul Brenner. So we agree that it's going to be interesting. We have, we have to keep a close eye on these things as, as we move forward because we are so dependent and you don't know what's going to happen. Okay, what about individual... Let's talk about the... Let, let's wrap up our, our individual viewing. Let's talk about the movies first. Westworld, iRobot, Artificial Intelligence. What order would you rank those in for your personal viewing pleasure? If... Forced. Mm -hmm. Forced I ranking, would rank we call this. AI as the highest, mm -hmm. Westworld as the middle, and iRobot as the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, so would I. But I would rank, I would almost rank the beginning of Westworld above AI, just because when we were watching it, at first I was like, oh my god, this is going to be exactly like Hot Fuzz, I have to buy this on DVD and watch it every week. Um, and then I was like, oh, never mind. Like, the the drawn-out chase sequence kind of killed it for me. It's still, I the, still liked it a lot, but I, it's not, it wasn't a movie that I was going to watch all the time Westworld. anymore. Westworld. Yes. Yeah. But AI is like 2001, almost, that you're going to want to, like, you're going to want to watch it when you're in, like, a, a, like a certain mood. Yeah, because it is not... There's a certain mood that it's you not should an adventure be in movie. to enjoy AI to the fullest. It's a very thoughtful um, movie, it's a, and it's a leisurely paced movie. I mean, they really take the Whereas with iRobot, you can just, like, throw on it a sleepover, and there's things exploding and Will Smith being sassy, and you have <laughs> no issue. And... Um, and Westworld, I'm way too excited for the reboot, I have to say. Here's what I want. I want a real-life Westworld, but I want it to be Jurassic Park, Hogwarts, and okay. the Shire. <laughs> so, <clears throat> that would, but then... That would be your optimal uh, uh, vacation yeah, to go but to but then the, I want yeah. them to switch locations. So, like, one week... It's OG Jurassic Park, and the next week it's Jurassic World. But then <laughs> one week it's Hogwarts, and the mm -hmm. next week it's like um, Hogsmeade. So um, you get the options, and then like one like the one week it's the Shire, and the next week it's Lothlorien, or like the next yeah. week it's Mirkwood. And then you could also switch between the book versions and the movie versions. Oh, okay, wow. so you could be staying in like. Um, tree houses in Lothlorien, okay? Mm -hmm. But then the next week you could be staying like in that courtyard with the found that they stayed in in the movie. Yeah. So my wrap up would my forced ranking would put them in the same order mm -hmm. as you. Mm -hmm. I think that AI is a very rich and layered film. Westworld is a fun little adventure, but it's 
it really is kind of thinly plotted and and it, it I don't think it's held up over the years like I thought it would. It's still a classic, but it was a very small movie in many ways, and perhaps that's exactly the kind of movie that could be made at that time. Uh, if it's rebooted now in a series format, they're going to really be able to mine that for all the story potential. I'm so psyched. And then I would have iRobot in the number three slot, but it would actually be more like the number 103 slot. There would be a huge gap between Westworld and iRobot because I just really did not like that movie on really any level. But then I have to say, we didn't watch Ex Machina because it's inappropriate. It would be hard to discuss and um, keep it as family friendly as we like to on this show. But I would like I would almost like I might give it the same level as AI though. So like if you're like I want to watch a robot movie but my kids asleep, yeah. watch Ex Machina <laughs> because yeah. you're going to get freaked out and it's going to be fantastic, I okay? Haven't, I haven't seen it yet, but the impression I get I don't want to watch it with is, you. Is, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. The impression I yeah. It's uh, it, it's adult themes. I think would make it awkward for parent child viewing. But it's viewings. so fascinating and just creepy and unsettling. And you like it's oh man. We also like watch it in the dark with a blanket right? and like some tea that you can. But don't sit with the tea near your computer because you'll like spill it. <laughs> like you're gonna like you're gonna do like a spit take. My final more comment than once. is just to give a shout out to one of the best robot movies ever that we didn't discuss, Blade Runner just because we can only discuss so much in one episode. I've never seen Blade Runner. And you haven't seen it, but I've come up with an idea. There are five different edits of Blade Runner. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> for various reasons. Tortured history. Oh, jeez. And uh, I think we should do a show where we watch all five of the edits, and then we just do a Blade oh, Runner show. God. <laughs> Anyways, Ex Machina features all the themes we've talked about, as well as the conversations with the robots that where you're trying to figure out whether they're sentient and what uh, they're thinking. So it's very, it's on the same level, very much fascinating, but it's also inappropriate. So don't watch it with your child, <laughs> even if they're old enough, because it's gonna be uncomfortable. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for episode 34, Voyager. It's been 20 years already. We welcome guest Kirsten Beyer, New York Times best-selling author of many Star Trek Voyager novels, to look back on the show and talk about where her books have taken the characters since the finale. Remember that Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from an abandoned factory littered with android spare parts. It's really kind of creepy, all those arms and legs in a pile. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks for listening, and come, come back, back next time. time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>